Good morning. It's Saturday, November 14th, and you are listening to an extra optimistic edition of Morning Meeting. I'm Ashley Baker, the style editor of Airmail. And I'm Michael Haney, the one of the deputy editors of Airmail. And this is me, optimistic. This is my, you know, my voice doesn't change. This is me, extra optimistic, right, Ashley? Michael, we'll take any version of you we can get, optimistic or not. Well, we all know what happened last Saturday, so that really set a jubilant mood for the week. And then this week, we've had truly summery weather in New York, so the outdoor dining scene has been on fleek, as the kids say, and (laughs) the spirit of the city is so buoyant. And then we got another jolt of good news this week. Are you talking about our new airmail slippers? No, but I guess that the right answer is yes. Oh, Michael, it's finally here. Now you can wear airmail on your feet, as one really should in life. And we have done a collaboration with Stubbs and Wooten on some pretty fantastic slippers that have our airplane logo on them. We named them the Hughes and the Airheart, and they are very chic and available for purchase at stubbsandwooten.com. And you can read all about them in the new issue of Airmail. I am personally wearing the green velvet ones with the gold airplane right now. Yeah, I think as you say, they're the perfect shoes for these times when we all want this sort of like little indoor-outdoor moment. You know, you might have your Birkenstocks. You need to, you need the shoe you're going to wear in the house because you're working from home and, you you know, you got to feel a little connected. So put put a nice pair of Stubbs and Wootens on. Very Bertie Jeeves in my mind. So it's a, it's a good thing. Very Jeeves is always the look I'm going for. Exactly. But I was talking about another good bit of news that, came along this week after Saturday and everyone sort of was starting to sort of recover from their hangovers of the past 48 hours, which is the news that came out of Pfizer and and the vaccine, right? I mean, it was just the one-two punch of excellent news this week. Yes, Pfizer has announced that their vaccine is looking like it's over 90% effective. And one of our columnists, the formidable Walter Isaacson, participated in the clinical trial. And we are very fortunate to have Walter here with us today and also writing about the experience in airmail. So, Walter, welcome to Morning Meeting. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in this. I'm writing a book, which uh, some of which you've seen in airmail, that involves Jennifer Doudna and the other pioneers that use CRISPR in order to edit our genes. They've just won the Nobel Prize for it this year. And CRISPR uses RNA to go chop up little sections of our genetic code and change our genes. So I became very fascinated with RNA. It's the molecule that started life on this planet. And so when I read that Pfizer and Moderna, two companies, were developing vaccines against coronavirus that worked not by using some deactivated version of a virus, but by using RNA of the virus, I thought, that's going to be cool. I should learn about that. And then I went online and I'm in New Orleans, which I... you know, has some mixed blessings, as I say in my piece. Uh, mixed blessing in New Orleans is that you can dance in the eye of a hurricane. In some ways, that's a metaphor for being in part of a uh, public health crisis, but you get to be involved. So I went down to Oxnard Hospital, down the road from where I live, and signed up to be part of the Pfizer clinical trial for their vaccine that uses a messenger snippet of RNA to go into our cells, instruct our cells to build a tiny protein that is the spike on the top of the coronavirus. And that means if we ever get the real coronavirus, our immune system is ready to stop it. What I love is you're exactly right. I think, was there ever a moment along the way where you thought, even the night before, like, gee, I don't know, maybe not such a good idea to do this. 
No, I mean, once you understand how the vaccine works, there's no danger. I mean, the downside is maybe it doesn't perform, maybe it doesn't stimulate your immune system, maybe it doesn't protect you against COVID, but having snippets of RNA, that's not going to kill you. And having it create a piece of protein that's a spike from the coronavirus, that's not like having the real coronavirus uh, injected into you. So it seemed there was absolutely no worry in my mind about the safety of the vaccine. Of course, I don't know, still don't know whether I got the vaccine or the placebo. There are 44,000 people who are in the trial and half got the vaccine and half got the placebo. Nobody out of that 44,000 has had any adverse health effects. The question is, how efficient has it been in protecting people against uh, developing COVID? Walter, we're living in this age of, you know, so much misinformation and the era of quote unquote fake news that coupled with this anti-vaxxer sentiment that we're seeing in so many pockets of the country. How, how do you think this is going to play out over the course of the vaccine rollout for coronavirus? Well, I think there are going to be, unfortunately, a lot of people who are going to be hesitant about getting vaccines. There's been an anti-vaccine sentiment, even for vaccines that we've had for decades and we know are safe and not only safe, but absolutely crucial to public health. And you have a anti-science sentiment in this country. Country. And in some ways, that means we will not be fast enough in taking the vaccine. That means the pandemic will continue some. However, just self-interest means that people who do get the vaccine, assuming it's as sufficient as the early data says it is, they will be protected from COVID. So even though the pandemic will continue, they'll be able to go to work, go out to dinner, go to the gym, go to concerts. Walter, how do you think this vaccine should be rolled out and how do you think it will be rolled out? My hope is that it won't be just this vaccine, but in late this month of November and sometime in December, we'll have at least three vaccines that have been in clinical final stage of clinical trials will get emergency authorization use. Uh, three vaccines will be better for a variety of reasons. One of them is that the AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine is done in a totally different way. And so it might be more effective for one part of the population than another. It doesn't have to be distributed at sub-zero temperatures. It also is harder to manufacture than RNA, which college biology student could do the sequence of the RNA. So you'll have different vaccines being rolled out. I think because of your question, Ashley, about people being wary of the vaccines, people being paranoid, people being anti-science, the big problem won't be that everybody will be rushing to get this vaccine and we won't have enough doses. Maybe a lot of doses are already being manufactured. So I suspect within uh, two months, anybody who really wants the vaccine will probably be able to get a vaccine once they start rolling out, which if I had to guess, it might even start rolling out for emergency use for healthcare workers in December. Two of the other really important notes that you hit in your piece is one is going through the process, being a volunteer made you 
much more comfortable about recommending the vaccine, right? Once it finally, because you've seen the safety, you understood the science behind it. But one thing which I'm, and I'm not a math guy, right? But right now they're reporting 90% of efficiency or, 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 or workability, right? So if someone happens to be in that 10% that it doesn't take, what does that mean and what are their options? I think it's actually, will end up better than 90% at producing antibodies. Uh-huh. However, there may be six, seven, eight percent that even though they have the antibodies still show some symptoms of COVID. So I would suspect, and I do not know, I've looked at what they've released, but I would suspect it would mean you would get a milder, if you're in that five to 10 percent where it's not efficient, you would still get a milder case of COVID. Sort of like a flu shot. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know. I could look it up for you. Our listeners could look it up. The flu shot is not 100% effective. I suspect by now measles and polio vaccines are close to 99.9% effective. But most vaccines, if they were going to authorize use of it, it had to be 70% effective. The fact that it's, I think, 94% effective in the early data shows it's better than most people expected. What, right. what, what that would mean is, yes, if you got exposed to the virus and you were in the unlucky 5 to 10% in which it was not very effective, you might get a milder case of COVID. But once, let us say, 70% of the nation or people you know, people in your community, if mm-hmm. uh, once 70% of them get the vaccine and it's 95% effective for everybody who gets the vaccine, at a certain point, COVID quits spreading. Well, Michael, I was just going to say this is about the best news I've had since we found out about Biden. Thank you, Walter. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Walter, I mean, what, so just remind our listeners, you, you're, you did the unbelievably brilliant book about Steve Jobs. You did the great book on Leonardo da Vinci, your book about the innovators. So this book, does it have a title yet? And, and when can we look yeah. for it? And thank you so much for letting me mention it. As I said, I think I've done two pieces for AML already. As I was reporting this over the past you know, few years, I uh, do scenes uh, for airmail. The book is uh, coming out March 9th uh, of this coming year. It's called The Code Breaker in Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing and the Future of the Human Race. And it talks about using molecules to figure out how to fight and detect COVID, to edit our own genes, and to cure things like sickle cell anemia and perhaps even fight cancer. Walter, in light of all this great vaccine news, do you think you'll be doing a book tour in person? Yeah, I think that we've all been pretty unlucky in this anaheribilis of 2020, but I think the waters are beginning to recede and the earth is beginning to heal and maybe my timing will be exactly right because in March, I think we're going to miss Mardi Gras down in New Orleans, which is early February. But I suspect by March, we'll be back to starting a normal routine again. I'll be up not only on book tour, but I assume Graydon and Alessandra will throw a little party somewhere at, for airmail and we'll have a dinner and we'll toast uh, the end of the pandemic and a much better year. Well, Michael, that was about the most gratifying conversation I've had in the last 10 months. 
Thank you, Walter. And uh, we have another guest returning this episode because we had such a great response to our conversation last week with David Sedaris. Yeah, I think everyone last week, we were so happy to have him here. And a lot of people said, what did David think about possibly the election? So let's find out. Here's sort of part two of Time with David and his thoughts about Trump and the world after Trump. As the world turns. What will you miss most about these days? The days that he was president. It's like people in America live, have been living the past four years. It's like we're a family and we've been living with a drunk father, uh-huh. you know, with an irresponsible drunk father. And so 50% of us anyway will have PTSD and will turn into strippers. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say I'm not going to miss anything. <laughs> yeah, but the good thing is that he's not. I mean, as a, as a nation, I think we're ashamed of him. But yes, you're right. We're still as ashamed of him as if he were our own father. You know, when people call Joe Biden boring, it's like, yeah, that's a selling point. Exactly. Right. He's not going to be on the front page every day. Yeah. He was interviewed on a podcast that I listened to a while ago. And he was really kind of getting down into what he was going to do policy wise. Mm -hmm. And I just I felt like you feel when you're on the plane and the pilot tells you what he's going to (laughs) do. You know, we're going to take off. We're going to get to 20,000 feet and we're going to ease over to the east. And I'm like, just do it. I'm just trusting you to do it. But that's what I've been living with, a pilot who can't do it. And I've been having to hear about it. Not just once a day, but several times a day. So I'm really not going to miss that at all. Somebody else pointed out recently that, you know, the only European country an American can go to now is Serbia. Is that real? Is that true? Yeah. No one else will let us in. I mean, I can go to England because I'm a resident there. Right. But I can't go to France. I can't go to the Netherlands. I can't even, like, I was flying to England earlier and my flight got canceled. They changed the flight. And so we had to have a stopover in Amsterdam. And I wasn't allowed not even to stop over and change planes in Amsterdam. What were you doing in Serbia, by the way? Vacation. Well, when I was in Serbia, there was, there was a long banner. Um, I was in Belgrade, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this long banner with photographs of young men and a few women on it. And there were dates. And I had a driver because uh, we hired a guy to drive us to uh, Bosnia. Mm-hmm. And so I saw these uh, these banners with all the pictures. And I said, are those people who were killed in the war? And he said, no, those are all people who were kidnapped by Albanians and had their organs harvested. <laughs> I was like, I thought I misheard him. Isn't that crazy? And he, he, he didn't know the word harvested. He said they're all people and they, they were kidnapped by Albanians who took them and cut out different parts of insides like lung. And I said, harvested. They had their organs harvested like a, you know, like an English teacher. I must have <laughs> sounded like. Are they then seen as heroes or what? What I mean? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I think I don't know if they were there as a warning or as just, you know, solemnly, you know, like you would mourn the victims of a school shooting or something. Right. They were a good-looking group, though. I mean, that would be interesting. Like, if, if you needed a kidney and they said, okay, here are pictures of people you can get your kidney from, I guess all of us would go to the best-looking person, wouldn't we? Yeah, you don't want to look at a guy like, hey, looks like that guy's been drinking for 45 years. I'll go for him, right? Or 
Okay, but let's say they, they, they didn't look like an alcoholic, but it was like a homely person and then a good-looking person. I think we'd all go, we don't want the kidney from the good-looking person. It would be like a kind of a grinder for organ. It would be an organ grinder, wouldn't it? That's what we should call it. We're going to call it organ grinder. And swipe through different pictures. Oh, God. <laughs> Dark, dark, dark. Okay, Dr. Sedaris. (laughs) This has been fun. I want to be respectful, not of you, but of your time. Um, And uh, is there anything we haven't talked about that we should? I can't think of anything. David, thank you so much. Anytime you'd like to come back on Morning Meeting, we are happy to have you. We always want to hear more from your wonderful world. Did you read Tom Ford's Perfect Ending? Of course I did. It's crazy. I mean, if there was ever any doubt that Tom Ford is my spirit animal, uh, it's been extinguished by this incredible column he did for Airmail. He talks about all of his favorite things in life, including his new watch, which he's made entirely out of ocean plastic, which is very cool. Tom Ford is such an icon of aging beautifully and getting sharper and smarter as the years pass. And yet it did surprise me that he said every weekday for breakfast, he has two donuts and an iced coffee. And every weekend he has three donuts and an iced coffee. Yeah, Tom likes to create a certain image of himself. I appreciate that. Tom is is basically one of my heroes. I love everything he does. I especially love his lipstick. Another funny thing that he said was his best piece of advice. Why kill yourself today when you can always wait and see what's going to happen tomorrow? Yeah, I did like that. That, that came from his father, right? His old father's bit of wisdom, yeah. which I also appreciate it. You know, my favorite surprise in it was... We asked his favorite first lady, and everyone would probably think he's going to say someone like Jackie Kennedy, right? Um, instead, he mentioned Eleanor Roosevelt. And then, of course, his theme song to his life, which I think is one of the best songs uh, of the last 50 years, is Slave to Love by Brian Ferry. He also defines the perfect escape as a fun-filled weekend of fasting and colonics. Yes. Yeah, I don't think that'd be mine. No, mine would probably be the opposite. But then again, I don't look as good as Tom Ford. I guess if, you know, you, you, at a certain point, you got to get rid of the donuts. Fair enough. It's got a trade-off. You want to eat two dozen donuts? Like, you know, Tom Ford is Homer Simpson six days a week. Uh, you know, seventh day that the bill comes due. Tom, I want to know what kind of donuts are you eating? Where are you getting them in L.A.? You know, you know how to contact us. We want to find out. Yeah, I mean, are they Dunkin'? Are they Krispy Kreme? Are they some from one of those, like, little Vietnamese donut shops is it you know are they, are they fresh every day do you keep like are do you buy them for the week on sunday like how does this work does he have like you know jenkins the houseman making donuts every morning is it like elvis presley you go downstairs in the morning and there's like a fluffernutter donut made for you i don't know you know i think michael the only way we're going to find out the answers to these questions is to be house guests at tom and richards so guys when you're ready for us just let us know We'll get the COVID vaccine and come visit you. There you go. Okay, moving on to equally pressing matters, Michael. Let's talk about... We're, not, we're actually not going to talk about The Crown this week because we talked about it last week. It's premiering tomorrow night. We're going to be talking about it for real next week. You sure we can't talk about The Crown or Diana at all? I mean, a minute, Michael. Just one minute. What do you want to say? Well, I just want to say that we've got a really great piece this week. If, like, if you're getting ready for The Crown, and we've got a terrific piece just about... Some of you may remember 
you know, as, as we said, like this, uh, this season, it's Diane enters the scene. And, and, uh, so we've got a great piece by Hillary Rose, just sort of talking about when Charles met Diana. I just want to remind you a few of a few points. It's like he was 32. She was 19. They basically only had met 13 times before they got engaged. And then she had been living in relative obscurity, but she managed to pass this test, which, as you learn in the crown, is called the Balmoral test, which is like, so they all decided that she was, she could withstand the pressure of, of becoming, you know, his wife. But, but when she was about to marry Charles, she discovers a bracelet that he had given to Camilla, his old flame. She wanted to call off the wedding. And her sister tells her, too late, your face is already on the tea towels. That's all. I'm just going to give you that bit of it. I don't know what the crown will show us, but I promise, Ashley, you and I will be exploring this crown for a long time now. But you know what? I'm really happy to explore because after the last year of drama, political drama, without not knowing how the storyline ends, we finally going to have a story where we know basically how it ends. So it's a little safer drama, right? I can't wait, Michael. I'm looking so forward to it. I'm going to be making a Victoria's sponge in honor of the occasion. And I'm hereby inviting you and Alessandra over. I think we should all watch it together. What is a Victoria's sponge? It sounds it sounds like something like Tom Ford would have his high, at his high colonic. I'm really concerned that you haven't been having a proper tea time. You know, Michael, this is reminding me the last time I was in London, right before lockdown, I had tea at not Claridge's, another great hotel, I can't remember the name of it, with our friend Luc Guadadin, who was at the time the creative director of Smithson. And I ordered, you know, the full English tea. It was at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And I, I basically ate all of it. Luke had none of it. And he was looking at me like I was insane. And I said, Luke, like, how often am I in London? The answer, of course, at that time was like, you know, four times a year. Now it's uh, none. So the, the moral of the story is always eat the Victoria sponge, always order the cake. Uh, I I'm relishing every bite and I can't wait to get back to London to do it again. I'm just going to say this. I call bullshit on tea time in, in, in the UK tea time. I find it really boring and it's like watching paint dry. It's It just seems like to stretch out forever in the middle of the day. You know what I, I would rather say? My, I would rather push through the three o'clock, four o'clock hour and I would trade it for not tea time, but I would trade it for an aperitivo hour in Italy, you know, 5.30. Okay, fine. Walk to the corner bar, order the drink, get all the free little pizzas and, and, chi- and chips and nuts and little snacks. And basically, like, that's what I would go for. But you know what? There's room for both of us, Ashley. So Christopher Buckley has written our view from here this week. That is our editorial that we use to kick off the issue. We have a very special guest with us today, Christopher Buckley, who has written our View From Here column. And tell us about what you wrote. Well, it was a um, uh, it's adapted from an essay I was uh, I was asked to write for a, a book that's being published with lightning <clears throat> celerity next week. It's on the it's a collection of essays on the theme of the morning after. And, you know, this was my take on the morning after the events of of last week, which were, uh, (laughs) you know, watching the uh, images of all the dancing in the streets in, you know, New York, especially New York, Mr. Trump's hometown, must have given him a warm and fuzzy feeling. I was sort of tempted to to dub the day uh, V. 
Day. Remember, in world at the end of World War II, we had VE Day, victory in Europe, and then we had VJ Day in in August when Japan surrendered. And this was this seemed to be qualify as DT Day or or D. VDJT day. <laughs> you're you're much quicker than I am, Michael. No, no, just just yeah. I'll, I'll uh, that that's that works for me too. Um, anyway, it's it was a uh, gosh, a, a sort of a, a cathartic exercise. Uh, this essay, I um, I kind of you know I've, I've been writing political satire for a while. My my first novel published in 1986 was a uh, it was called the White House Mess. It was a parody White House memoir. In, and in the f- very first scene, which is set in uh, on January 20th, 1989, the day when President Reagan would leave office, the the motorcade con- uh, carrying the, the new president arrives at the White House to escort Mr. Reagan up to the Capitol for the inaugural ceremonies. And Mr. Reagan won't leave, but not not for any malevolent or defiant, uh, uh, truculent reason. He's just he's gone a bit, you know, dotty, and he, it's, you know, it's cold outside. <laughs> and so the you know the incoming uh, the incoming administration is presented with its first crisis even before taking office. That was a somewhat turned out to be somewhat risque premise uh, back in 1986. And uh, and here we are. Well, this then this then sort of leads to what what I think was was the sort of my favorite moment in your piece this week, where you 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 crafted for her and him the words we've been all longing for him to say, which is his concession speech, or a bit of it. And I'm just wondering if we could impose upon you to to read that the, the draft of that speech for us. Okay, uh, I won't uh, <clears throat> dare to compete with. Uh, uh, Alec Baldwin or Stephen Colbert, so I'll, I'll do it in my own voice. <clears throat> Fake election, folks. You know it, and I know it. A total disgrace. It's very sad. Saddest thing ever in history. The Biden crime family and the radical socialist, actually, let's call them what they really are, disgusting communists. Disgusting. They stole the election. Not from me, from you. That's right. But don't worry, folks, we're going to get it back. Oh, yeah, we are so going to get it back. I will rise again in four days. Was it four days? I think it was four days. Some say three. Whatever. But don't worry, folks, I'm not going anywhere. So then, Chris, that begs the question, what do you, what, and I guess, you know, the last question for you is, what do you think is Donald Trump's near future? Well, uh, he's got... uh, I imagine he's got a few um, things on his calendar. Uh, he's, you know, t- t- <clears throat> he's he's already talking about. He's now <clears throat> today's newspaper uh, has him uh, <clears throat> contemplating a, a MAGA uh, TV network. <laughs> so mostly to get back at Fox News <laughs> for being insufficiently servile. There's a, a brain stopping concept for you. But, you know, he's got, uh, he's facing some uh, tough things ahead. He's, he owes Deutsche Bank a great deal of money. The IRS may decide that the $72 million tax rebate that it gave him isn't, in fact, uh, allowable. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, the district attorney in New York, Mr. Vance, um, 
seems to be on the verge of getting a hold of those tax returns, <laughs> which, of course, we've been denied for <clears throat> these past four or five years because they're under audit. So, um, you know, he, uh, he could theoretically uh, go to jail, and uh, in which case we would, uh, <laughs> his, his wardrobe would be color-coordinated with his complexion. Orange hair is the new black. Orange hair is the new black. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much. Um, You're very welcome. I enjoyed uh, hanging with you and Ashley. And uh, I love airmail. I really do. It's, uh, it's my, my go-to reading on, on Saturday morning. Oh, you, you've just given us our, next, our new ad campaign, so thank you. Um, <laughs> Well, Michael, it's always a treat to have Chris Buckley both in the issue and on the podcast. I love his sense of humor and his worldview, and we need more people like him. Yeah, and we need, um, uh, uh, you know, his words, not so much his words to God's ears, his words to Donald Trump's lips and then to God's ears. So um, that's what we need. That's a great way to put it. All right, moving on. Are we on? Michael, uh, now that we no longer have to spend 14 hours a day refreshing 538, how are you spending your time these days? Is there anything you could recommend? I've recently started watching The Queen's Gambit, which I'm enjoying quite a bit. It involves a pawn star, as I like to call it. See, that's a joke. P-A-W-N, pawn star. <laughs> which you, you've probably seen is, a, is about um, a female chess prodigy. It's got a terrific production design, but it's co-created by a guy named Scott Frank and, and and his partner, who you may remember wrote a fantastic movie called Out of Sight about 20 years ago, which starred George Clooney and uh, Jennifer Lopez. Super smart, super cool. So I'm enjoying that. Ashley, what are you loving these days? I can't help it, Michael. I love The Undoing. Okay, why? The interiors, the costumes. We're talking about the Hugh Grant, Nicole Kidman, HBO show, right? Of course. I keep calling it like the undercut. Like I can never remember the name of it because it's sort of forgettable, but it's the undoing. And I've watched the first three episodes. I can't get enough. You know, I just saw Nicole Kidman traipsing through the streets of New York in that green hooded coat that reminded me of something from that witch movie she was in back in the 90s. Uh-huh. But I love the fashion. My guess is that that's Gautier Couture. That's kind of what it looks like. And then she had that micro pleated lame dress at the school fundraiser that was heaven. You know, again, maybe I'm paying attention to all the wrong things in this show, but I find it very interesting. You know, speaking of books, Yabby, uh, there, there's, there's one that came out that I think you may already know for uh, the kids. Oh, yes. Speaking of New York and, and books and kids, um, Ludwig Bemelman, who, you know, wrote Madeline and uh, you actually probably know him best for his work at the Cafe Carlisle uh, in, in, in New York here. Yeah, at Bemelman's. Uh, you know me so well, Michael. At the Great Murals. He, there's a, there's a, he's got a new book out. His, his family brought it out. Uh, it had been sort of lost for a long time. It's called Sunshine, a story about the city of New York. And it was originally published in 1950. And it offers a kind of a vision of the city where he lived most of his life. So it, it's come out. It's beautiful drawings, again, by someone who I think has a fond place in not just you, your heart and my heart, but so many New Yorkers and Parisians and, and people who, who love those cities and, and uh, his, his ability to, to capture the, that sort of poignancy and poetry and, and the romance and a little bit of that, that romantic melancholy and, and um, optimism at the same time. So um, it's just come out, probably a great thing to read right now. All right, Michael. Well, thank you very much for that. 
I have nothing else to add except got, I've got to go, Michael. I've got a busy day at the uh, Four Seasons Landscaping. I'm holding a press conference. How's that going to go? Yeah, I don't. I don't really know. I have nothing really to say. But um, it wasn't fair. It was stolen from me. Uh, the votes weren't counted. It was all rigged. And um, on that note, I've really got to go. Sorry about that. Uh, so, do you mind reading us out? Uh, I'd be delighted to, Ashley. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our editors are Graydon Carter and Alessandra Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Speaking of music, our theme music is The Cute Monster by the buddy Colette Quintet, and we also would like to give special thanks to Joe Perzecki. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which is updated every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly, and you can find Ashley and myself, Michael, on our own Instagram accounts. Uh, we'll be back here next Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime, be sure and subscribe at Apple Music or Spotify and rate us if you care to. Most of all, thanks for joining us.